This is the Innovation Engine podcast from Three Pillar Global, your home for conversations with industry leaders on all things digital transformation and innovation. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine podcast. I'm Scott Varho, your host and Three Pillar's Chief Evangelist, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by David Schoenthal. David is an award-winning professor of strategy, innovation, and entrepreneurship at the Kellogg School of Management where he teaches courses on new venture creation, design thinking, healthcare innovation, and creativity. Alongside his colleague, Lauren Nordgren, David is one of the originators of friction theory, a groundbreaking methodology that explains why even the most promising innovations and change initiatives often struggle to gain traction with their intended audiences and what to do about it. Their work is popularized in the best-selling book, The Human Element, Overcoming the resistance that awaits new ideas. I highly recommend it. It's a great read. David spent a decade working at world-renowned design firm IDEO, and he currently serves as operating partner at Seven Wire Ventures, a healthcare technology-focused venture capital firm, and a venture partner at Pritzker Group Venture Capital, a consumer and enterprise-focused fund. Fund. <laughs> uh, David, welcome to the fun. innovation. So and <laughs> I hope it's also fun. Um, welcome to the innovation engine. We're we're really excited to have you. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. So, so let's get um, going and starting with the the concept of fuel and friction because I think this is is such a bedrock of the of the book um, and and some of the ideas that that you and and Lauren are talking about. So, can you talk about that? Introduce us on on the the concepts of of fuel and friction, how it relates to to products. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, anytime we're trying to get somebody to do something different from what they do today whether that's adopting a new strategy or buying a new product or warming up to an idea, uh, there are two forces, primary forces at play, as you mentioned. One is the force of fuel, which are all of the forces that move people towards change. The recognition that whatever they're doing today is no longer sufficient and that a change needs to be made. All of the benefits of that idea or product that are meant to address that problem, we collectively refer to those motivating forces as fuel. But on the other side of the equation are all of these hidden forces, often tricks of the human mind, that stand in the way of change. And we refer to these forces collectively as frictions. And in our work and in our book, The Human Element, Lauren and I have identified four primary sources of friction, and we go through uh, how to spot them and how to remedy them. But the main idea here is that not all resistance is the same. The first step is figuring out which subtype of resistance you are facing or are likely to encounter and making sure that you're implementing strategies, not only to create the idea to the best of its ability, but how to introduce that idea in the world in such a way that it minimizes those sources of friction. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I mean, this makes so much sense. And and you have such a great story that I've now actually, sorry, co-opted and and retold several times, uh, if I'm being completely honest. Um, but you have such a great story about a um, a company that sells sofas, and I, I loved this example. Can you can you share the background on that story and and what you found? I also love that you've co opted it. it. To me, it's like when a band plays and someone else starts covering their songs. Like that's like the highest form of compliment. So if you want to cover that story, be my guest. I appreciate uh, the permission because I've been yeah. doing it without it. No, please. So uh, the story is that. A number of years ago, there was a startup here. It's since been sold, but there was a startup here in Chicago that had a really unique value proposition. They were in the business of creating custom sofas, custom furniture, 
And they were able to do it for a fraction, like 75% less than what it typically costs for a custom sofa. And they were able to deliver this fully customized piece of furniture to your house in 10 weeks or less. For those of you that have never considered a custom piece of furniture, this will probably not be like eye-popping stats. But for those of you that have considered custom furniture, this is game-changing. Like all of a sudden you're taking a sofa that would have been, you know, $25,000 perhaps, and you're making it available to me for something closer to $2,500 or $3,000. So like order a magnitude cheaper, and you're able to deliver it to my house in 10 weeks or less, which is a pretty remarkable feat of supply chain engineering. Absolutely. And so not surprisingly, they got a lot of traction. They had tens of thousands of unique visitors to their website every week. Uh, on average, people spent like somewhere in the range of five to six minutes designing the custom sofa of their dreams on the website. And for those of you that don't understand or aren't as familiar with KPIs, key performance indicators of e-commerce, spending that much time on a website is like mind boggling. That's that is a, that, a that's an enviable engagement. An, yes. right, an enviable <laughs> engagement statistic. And so lots of people showing up, lots of people spending a significant amount of time customizing the perfect sofa. They figured the size, the shape, the hardware, uh, the throw pillows, every little detail. And right at the end, after they've scheduled a delivery, just about just before they're about to click the purchase button, this very unusual trend started to emerge, which is that they go through this whole experience and right before they're about to click buy, people would figuratively, and sometimes if they were in one of the retail stores, literally abandon their cart. They would walk away from this purchase that they'd invested a bunch of time in. Now, this was alarming to the company because clearly they had a compelling enough value proposition. There was enough fuel in the idea that brought people to the website in the first place. There was enough interest in the custom sofas they were offering to get people to engage for five, six minutes at a time. So why was it that people were at the very last moment walking away from the transaction? Now, if you are the, uh, the company, the instincts that you probably have about this are things like, well, maybe they got to the end and they found out the total cost was more than they bargained for. So they walked away. Mm -hmm. Or eh, maybe if I don't actually get to see it or sit on it or I get to touch it, like maybe it's too good to be true. So I'd rather shop for a sofa that I'm more interested in or that I can I can touch and sit on. Or maybe this was just an exercise in me designing a prototype, and now I'm going to go look for something at another retailer. So what did they start doing? They started trying to run promotions and discounts and uh, talk about money-back guarantees, 100-day satisfaction guarantees to minimize some of what they believed the friction to be, which was people not having confidence in their ability to design their own sofa. So they ran these campaigns for quite a while. None of them produced meaningful conversion, and so they sort of continued to be frustrated, like what actually is going on here? And to sort of cut to the chase, we went in and did a bunch of interviews with customers of theirs that had been reluctant about buying one of their sofas and eventually decided to do it. And after about 10 to 12 interviews, I mean, not many, 10 to 12, you start packing these interviews on top of each other, layering them on top of one another. And this very interesting pattern begins to emerge in all of these disparate stories which was that these individual consumers would not allow themselves to purchase a new sofa until they could figure out what they were going to do about getting rid of the sofa they already had, which sounds absurd. You're like, why would somebody <laughs> stop buying something they clearly wanted? They'd invested a lot of time in because of their like 
15-year-old hand-me-down Jordan's furniture sectional that they got from their parents. Nothing against Jordan's furniture. Uh, but like, <laughs> you know, why would this be the thing? But if you sort of stop and you consider it for a second, you're like, well, I mean, if I was a young person living in a walk-up apartment in Chicago or New York City or Boston, like, would I have to call my friends over on the weekend to help me get this sofa out of my house? Like, that's a pain. How would we even get it out of the house? Do we have the tools to disassemble it and bring it down the stairwell? What if we scuff up the walls? Let's assume for a moment a moment that we're even successful getting it out the door. Like, then what? Do you leave it in front of the house? Do you put it in the alley? Is somebody going to come and take this away? And until they could wrap their brains around how this was going to happen, they wouldn't allow themselves to purchase that new sofa. So mm. obviously, when the company learns about this pattern, the solution becomes totally self-evident, right? Which is take away the existing sofa when you drop off the new one, which is precisely what the company did. And all of a sudden, from that very simple removal of effort-related friction, they increased conversion by double-digit percentages. And it had nothing to do with changing the price. It had nothing to do with changing uh, their money-back guarantee. It just had to do with removing the little bit of effort-related friction that was hiding in plain sight to get people to convert. And that's really kind of the perfect encapsulation of friction theory in general, which is oftentimes once we identify where the friction is, the solution to overcoming it or remedying it is usually self-evident. The trick is being able to spot it in the first place. Well, and one thing that, that really strikes me too is that a lot of times the solution can actually be cheaper than these other techniques that you have tried, especially, you know, you know, trying to cut price, Absolutely. trying to enhance uh, materials, right? Changing your manufacturing product. Like you're, you're making all the wrong investments. Um, and um, so it, it's a, it's a fascinating reminder that we have to, we have to get to the, the, uh, the, the audience side of the equation, the, the target audience that we're trying to get to and understand what holds them back. Well, you're absolutely right. I would also say in addition to that, it's not just that friction removing solutions are cheaper and don't cut into contribution margins like running promotions. Sometimes people can actually charge more for a solution that removes the friction from the process. Uh -huh. uh, you've uh, met Bob Mesta, who's a friend and, and a colleague, and uh, I don't know if he's ever told you the, the famous story about the, the dining room table and, and some of the other work that he's done around jobs to be done, but there's a story that he tells about a um, real estate development company that he was involved with back in the earlier part of the 2000s. And I won't ruin Bob's story, but to make a long story short, they realized that the furniture, the sorry, the um, home builder was not really in the business of home building. They were in the business of helping people downsize. And once they realized they were in the downsizing business, in addition to selling them condos, they were also able to bundle in moving services and self-storage services, all of which cut into the margin of the condo they were selling. So what did they wind up doing? They raised the price of the condo by about $15,000 per condo, which was more than enough to cover all of those costs. And I think still deposit like another 6 million in straight profit to the bottom line. So a more expensive condominium that uh -huh. sold, I think like 25 or 30% more simply because the way that they had packaged everything together removed all of the hassle and all the friction from the buyer's decision. So not only were they able to remove friction, they were able to charge more and make a more profitable product in the process. Yeah. Anything that saves people anxiety, anything that saves them time, anything that saves them hassle, those are valuable value propositions and people will pay. 
Well, and one thing that, that that's really striking to me, and if we, I mean, once you hear these things, it's like, oh, duh, like that totally makes sense. I mean, they're, they're, it's really shocking how how invisible these obstacles were to us until we see them, and then you can't unsee them. They're, they're just right. glaring. It's like, well, but one of the things that strikes me in both of these stories that's so interesting is is how easy we tend to make it to to make the purchase. And the, the, the cognitive load of the buyer to solve the problems that are holding them back, are, they're actually gigantic. And they didn't come into it, you know, they came into it looking for a condo. They came into it looking for a sofa. And, you know, gosh, the sofa company made it dead easy in six minutes. You get to design your sofa, you're ready to check out. And then the overwhelming, you know, reality of, of, this, of this moment hits you. Um, and so unless you understand the real world implications of what you're, what you're doing, what your buyer is going through, you, you really can't get into that stuff. Um, you're right. I think you have a perfectly good product. <laughs> well, you, that's a great observation. We assume that when somebody shows up to our website that they've already sold themselves on the idea that change is good. Mm-hmm. We assume that when somebody walks into a car dealership, they are ready to buy a car that day. And that assumption is really dangerous. I mean, this, the, the speed at which decisions are made these days actually increases the amount of friction we experience hmm. because the process yeah. sometimes moves faster than people's level of comfort. Mm-hmm. And so reorienting ourselves away from how do we make the purchasing experience better or the website better to how do we make the actual internalization of change easier. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's really the magic equation. There's, there's a phrase that I've heard that I really like. People love the idea of innovation, but don't like the idea of change, which (laughs) is a total conflict, right? Like, Oh, we want the outcome of innovation. We just don't want to change to get there. And so, so many companies focus on the outcome of innovation. Very few focus on how to manage or smooth the process of change to get them to that outcome. Well, one thing about there's there's an embedded irony here as well that I've seen in leaders that um, refuse to take in new information when they've got an idea they think is good, right? Yeah. They, they, and and you know to be fair, like to them, in order to get new ideas adopted, there's a certain level of stubbornness you have to adopt in order to to hit your goals and, and convince others to come along, right? But if you're not taking in new information, you're missing out on a treasure trove of insights that are ultimately going to make or break. The success of your idea, um, and so that plasticity, um, that ability to take in new information and adapt, I, I've found to be a really rare characteristic in, uh, especially like early venture um, leaders. And I, I think it's a, it's a critical component. We yes, um, you know, confirmation bias is a dangerous thing, and and I would also say that at least from the world that I'm in, where I spend half my time in the world of venture capital and half my time in the world of entrepreneurship education. We try to identify the most backable founders, the most backable leaders are the mm-hmm. ones that are problem focused and not product focused mm-hmm. or they're outcome focused and not product focused. Because if you're focused on the outcome, but you're not totally in love with the product or the idea, you'll allow yourselves to take in that information, oftentimes information because you're focused on your laser focused on the outcome. How you get there is less important than that. You get there. Mm-hmm. People who are in love with products tend to, minimize, as you said, all of those situational bits of information and focus on the idea itself as the hero of the story. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so bringing us back to the concept of, of friction, you talked about four types of friction. Um, do you mind kind of taking us through those, yeah, those four types? Sure. And and that's a perfect segue. I mean, really what friction theory is about is about less about the idea and more about the audience. So how do you understand 
both their sources of fuel, their motivations for change, but also those hidden forces of friction that are standing in the way. So the four types of friction that we identify in the book are number one, inertia, which is a human being's overwhelming tendency to stick with what they know, despite the fact that what they know is insufficient. The second one is effort, which is the real or perceived amount of effort required in order to make the change. That can be physical effort, but more often than not, it's, you mentioned this before, cognitive load, cognitive effort. Mm -hmm. How clear or ambiguous is the change, the more cognitive load we're placing on our, on our audience, the more they will resist it because of effort-related friction. The third is emotional friction, the anxiety or fear a change creates in our audience. Hmm. The trick about emotional friction is it's not often that people will wear these emotions on their sleeve. It's not like somebody's <laughs> saying like, oh, well, you know, hey, Scott, are you interested in change? Well, yeah, but it's going to make me feel a little vulnerable in my organization. Or are you interested in this stuff? Well, it's going to make me feel a little inadequate compared to my younger peers. Like people don't typically verbalize those vulnerabilities. Would be nice? Yeah. It would be great. But so emotional friction is one where we kind of have to have methods to tease it out. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth one is something we refer to as reactance. And reactance is our human aversion to being changed by others. Mm -hmm. And when we feel like others are imposing their change on us, no matter how good that idea is, we'll push back against that change with equal or if not greater force. You know, sometimes this, is, this has some cultural variance, right? Like certainly in the United States, reactance is there. Other cultures may be less so, but typically people don't like being told what to do. So how do you get people on board with an idea when they're resistant to an idea that's not theirs? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's actually interesting because I work with uh, teams all around the globe. Uh, I can definitely tell you there are, there are cultural differences. I mean, even in Central Europe between countries, mm -hmm. um, I find my my teams in in one country are, are much more reactive than, uh, than teams in another country. So I was in Singapore earlier this summer and I was giving a talk on friction theory and I got to reactance and I was like, you know, and it came obviously in hot with an American point of view on this. And I'm, I'm learning to be a little bit more uh, mindful of the audience, but I said, particularly in the American example, I was talking about vaccine hesitancy as it related to COVID vaccines. And part of the reason that people were hesitant to get a vaccine is because the government was telling them what to do. I'm like, don't you hate it? Like, not, not like a Jerry time, but like, don't you hate it? But like, there was this point, but even though it was a, clearly a good idea, people were hesitant because the government was insisting that they do it. And I'm talking to this audience of Singaporeans and they're looking at me like I have seven heads. They're like, what do you mean the government? <laughs> Compliance is not an a good idea. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. All right. So <laughs> clearly, this is an example that I need to modify for more like collective cultures versus individual cultures. And, you know, now that I've spent more time talking about this in Asia, I've become more, more aware of, of some of those cultural sensitivities. And reactance is a big one. Like, depending on where you find yourself in the world, that either lights up in a big way or, or not. Yeah, I mean, it's. It, I'm cracking up because I'm just imagining what's going through the mind of a Singaporean, uh, given uh, how the regime in Singapore works, um, knowing that it's a very extreme. Well, and just in general, collective cultures, collectivist cultures versus individualistic cultures. Like I do a lot of work in Japan, and that's a similar situation where like it's more of a we mindset than an I mindset. That's right. And so obviously, these frictions—they're always present in human conditions. They're always—they're just a naturally human phenomenon. But they they show up differently and at different magnitudes depending on where you find yourself in the world. And so we we just talked about the research, so that that kind of covers like how do you 
But I'm curious if you have more to say about how do you uncover some of the emotional friction? Because like you said earlier, people aren't going to be forthright about that necessarily what's going on for them emotionally. They may not even be mm. aware of it or conscious of it. Um, so what, what are some ways in which you recommend kind of getting at those, those types of? Yeah. Um, emotional frictions are of all of the different frictions that we've talked about. This one probably lends itself most to the importance of qualitative research and interviewing. Hmm. Um, and it can be as comprehensive as doing a jobs type interview, a jobs to be done type interview where you're looking for the four forces, et cetera. Hmm. But it can also be as simple as anytime you're like having a meeting with an employee or a colleague or somebody you want to get on board with a new idea. It can be as simple as creating the space for those emotional frictions to be put on the table. Hmm. Like, saying, hey, Scott, we're going to roll out this new transformation approach. It's going to affect you and your work in these ways that we can see, maybe some other ways that you're thinking about it. If I were in your shoes, I'd have a few hesitations about this. One of them might be like, how are you going to get upskilled for this? Second, how much latitude are you going to have to get used to this new project? Third being, you know, the speed of transformation. Like, what are some concerns as you hear me talk about this? What are some concerns that enter your mind? There must be some. Hmm. And even just creating the space for you to be able to put them on the table. Yeah. Now that they're on the table, we can have a discussion about it. But if they're in your head and you're reluctant to share them, uh, then it's really hard for me to do much about it. So giving people permission to understand, uh, sharing the why behind the what and allowing people to probe on that a little bit. Hmm. And even sharing some examples of others. Like, Scott, I've talked to a couple of your colleagues and the things that I'm hearing from other people, the patterns that are beginning to emerge is that everybody's worried about the timeline and they're worried about it for different reasons. Some are worried about it for X, some of them are worried about it for Y. But when I give you that space to talk about it, oftentimes you can, you can verbalize what might be in your head. If people are particularly sensitive about it, what you can do is abstract the conversation away from the change that you're talking about to some other type of change that this person has experienced. Scott, the last time you felt this way, this source of anxiety at work, what was the project at that time? What was the change that was being asked of mm. you at that time? What were your hesitations about that? And how did you get over them? Mm. Now I'm taking you away from this very personal situation. Maybe I'm a stakeholder and you don't want to hurt my feelings. Now that I'm taking you to a different example from the past, you're less worried about hurting my feelings. And you might say, well, let me tell you about the time this other person put a change in front of me and they had no in, they had no comprehension of how difficult this was going to be. They had no understanding about how people were completely unclear about how the change would take place. Mm. And the timeline they put forward was totally unreasonable. So my first reaction was to just pretend like the change wasn't going to take place at all, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. But because I've taken it away from this conversation, this you and me, now you feel a little bit more empowered to give me the real truth because you're talking about a different example. But me, listening to this, I know that when you're talking about the past example, you're also coaching me on how to help you in the present. That's right. That's right. Yeah, there's much more likely to share things that'll be insightful that you can you can then leverage. Let's talk a little bit about uh, you know a powerful concept that anyone who needs to sell their ideas to others needs to needs to understand, which is self persuasion. Um, mm -hmm. I actually was just doing some uh, some interesting uh, reading on on this concept. Uh, there's an interesting uh, what is it called the uh, the hypocrite paradox, um, like if you if you get people that are trying, you're trying to enforce behavioral change and you get them to tell others 
that they should make a, you know, a behavior change that they agree with. Um, and that they, so then they start marketing that idea themselves, maybe create a video or whatever. The effect is in, incredibly powerful on the person who's doing the persuading. It's so much more likely that, that their behavior will change. But so I, I, this, this concept of, of self-persuasion, um, why is it is so much more powerful than influence? Uh, well, I think it is, it is influence, right? Persuading somebody to persuade themselves is kind of one of the core uh, methodologies behind influence. I mean, leading somebody to, let me sort of stop and, and, and go backwards a little bit. When you bring an idea to me, it is your idea. Hmm. And if you're pushing that idea on me, not only am I now critiquing the idea, I'm also critiquing the fact that you're forcing me or seemingly forcing me to do something that I might not be inclined to do, or you're removing my autonomy and making that decision. Uh, a good example is like the pushy salesperson like use car salesperson, like whoever you want to fill into that trope in your mind. Why don't we like the pushy salesperson? Is it because they don't know a lot about cars? Is it because they don't know a lot about software? Is it that they don't have the technical knowledge? No, it's not any of that. They probably know more than enough about all of these things. We don't like them because we feel like they're forcing us to make a decision that we're not prepared for. We don't feel like we've got any say in. So to remove that reactance, that reactance-related friction, one of the techniques that we talk about in the book is inviting people to persuade themselves. And there's a few different techniques that we talk about when it comes to how you get somebody to persuade themselves. But one really easy one to internalize, uh, and, and Lauren says this often, and I, I like it quite a bit, when you see an exclamation point, replace it with a question mark. Rather than me say like, mm. you have to do this, you should do this, like this is gonna be great. How might you turn those into questions that invite the recipient of that information to begin to persuade themselves? Because yeah. now we're having a dialogue about it, which is no longer me receiving the idea from you. Now I've got a feeling of at least partial authorship in the idea because my voice is being heard. Mm -hmm. And self-persuasion can happen very, very subtly. You just described that example of inviting people to persuade others. And when you invite people to persuade others, you're thereby persuading yourself. Mm -hmm. Like there's really subtle examples of this uh, all over the place. A good one is uh, a change that had been made in anti-smoking campaigns on television. Mm -hmm. It used to be that when you saw anti-smoking campaigns on television, what it would be was some human speaking to you, like smoking has these effects and it causes emphysema and increases your chance of lung cancer, whatever it might be, COPD. And it was like, imagery and voices basically talking at you about the negative effects of smoking. Um, even though all of them were true and all of them were science and evidence-based, that technique didn't prove particularly effective because the people in the audience who were well aware of the fact that smoking is bad for them didn't want mystery voice to tell them to stop. Like because the voice was telling them to stop and it wasn't their idea, it wasn't nearly as effective. So anti-smoking advertisers made a very subtle but, but quite interesting change in the way that they marketed, which was to no longer have voices speaking data to you. Instead, what it did is it just put information on the screen that you read yourself in your own head. Hmm. And because you were reading it with your own internal voice, now it was you talking about the data. Now it was you reading the data. Mm -hmm. And that was a very subtle beginning process of self-persuasion because now it's not somebody else telling me. Now it's me beginning to tell myself simply mm -hmm. by reading it in my own head. So yeah. it can be as 
like microscopic of a change into how we introduce things is that as long as it makes the recipient of the change feel in some way like they're participating in it. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, that's a great illustration because it is, it is subtle. Um, we, we oftentimes will talk in, especially in leadership circles or management, like how do we get people to feel like it was their idea? But, um, but th this is a much more subtle psychological, um, uh, mechanism that we're talking about. They have to convince, they have to talk, ultimately talk themselves into it to be really bought in. But it can also be, as like you said, it can just say, hey, we're thinking about this change. We're thinking about this strategy before we roll out any new policies. We'd love to hear what what thoughts do you have on this? Are there any additions that you would make to the strategy that we haven't thought of? Mm -hmm. Involving people in the process of change is another way of removing reactants. It's not entirely self-persuasion, but it's something we would refer to as co-design or, or, or um, uh including our customers, quote unquote, in the process of design. And when they feel like they're being included, when they are included, that minimizes the amount of friction that they face. So I was doing a talk last two weeks ago at a conference, and one of the other people on the bill was a gentleman from the Ritz-Carlton who talked about their service principles and their service strategies. And one of the design principles, one of like eight or nine design principles of Ritz-Carlton service is always include those affected by the change in the design of the change itself. Like when their staff, when their when their team, someone, feel someone read like from design thinking, <laughs> really, like when their team feels included, all of a sudden they warm up to an idea because they feel like their fingerprints are on it. They're authors of change versus just recipients, which is I love that. And it's also likely the idea will become better by including the authors in the process. So this isn't just a manipulative technique right. to get people to say yes. When you do co-design it far enriches the idea versus if you did it on your own in a vacuum. So we actually really, we really liked the book and, and we, we read it um, all the way to the end and, and found out um, that you're one of a triplet. Yeah. I don't think I've ever met a triplet before. What's, what no. is that like? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, to be fair, I, I don't know any differently, but um, that's a good point. It's pretty cool. I mean, I'm definitely one of the older triplets people meet. I feel like triplets are a little bit more common, but being born in the 1970s, it was a real rarity. Hmm. So my brother Ben, uh, who actually he lives in New Zealand, but he just flew into town this week. He's here on a sabbatical. He's also an academic. Uh, He's a professor of uh, Buddhism and anthropology oh, in, cool. in New Zealand. <laughs> Uh, super cool. Uh, the range my, of your conversations is going to be fascinating. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Ben and I are, are right now talking about doing some writing together. I mean, he's an expert on the role that ritual plays in building culture. And mm. I'm interested in the role that ritual plays in building culture and business. So while he's here, he's actually doing a sabbatical at Northwestern. We're going to find some time to nerd out on that and maybe something interesting will shake out of it. My sister Molly uh, is an entrepreneur. She is right now building a seed stage startup focused on uh, the future of retail as it relates to its integration with television. So yeah. Have, have, the, the, have the three of you been part of genetic studies? I have to imagine. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Back in the seventies, I think I'm boy, like there was a whole series of research, a bunch of research that took place in the university of Chicago and it's pretty funny, like we still, I've in a drawer somewhere, I've got a copy of the report. I think I'm boy A and it talks about like some of the weird behavior I used to do as being part of a multiple birth. But yeah, we were, we were definitely parts of those studies. That's fascinating. Well, the, these questions are, don't lend themselves to speed. Um, all right. So your, 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 your co-author, Laura Nordgren has a giant, yeah. a giant pet tortoise named Icarus. Icarus. Yeah. 
So it's thoroughly entertaining to watch that thing eat cherry tomatoes. Like it's it's a, it's a party trick. This is this is definitely not speed run. But if you go over to Lauren's, <laughs> if you go over to Lauren's and you're just hanging out, and Icarus is just hanging out on the deck with you, he'll like toss him a cherry tomato, and it's super cute to watch him like chase a cherry tomato around the deck. <laughs> just like you, never mind. I want to ask questions. Um, it's usually successful, but it takes like a couple of attempts, and it's it's definitely unique. Well, you know, you mentioned earlier that he's very into animal animal uh, behavior yeah. as an analog for uh, um, human behavior. Um, so, <laughs> what what's the pet situation in your house? Uh, we have a, a dog who uh, we got uh, two years ago. He's a rescue. He's a pit bull named Kevin. Um, my son named him <laughs> the co- COVID. COVID uh, dog. I was COVID. Yeah, there's a long, much longer story about about Kevin. We had no idea that he was a pit bull until we got him genetically tested oh. twice. Um, going back to genetics, uh, but he's wonderful. And then there's two goldfish in the house, uh, coral and big Papa shark. Okay. Again, speed round. I'm going to stay on, uh-huh. on point. Uh, uh, well, we well, could well, actually, well. I could any of these rabbit holes you want. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, uh, in short, where should our listeners go to find out more about your work? David Schoenthal.com, S-C-H-O-N-T-H-A-L. Google's pretty good if you get my name mostly right. It'll usually take you to the right place. Uh, also, my faculty page at the Kellogg School of Management. There's some stuff there. But um, yeah, those two places are pretty good. Fantastic. And and I'm, I'm sure you already know that your last name means Beautiful Valley. It does. It does. How did you know that? Are you a German speaker? I, yeah, I speak German and, and Czech, but um, yeah, I was like, Schoenthal, really? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, that's an odd, uh, I mean, how did that become someone's last name? <laughs> I mean, there's actually a Schoenthal in Germany, uh, a town of Schoenthal, wow. which I've never been to, but it is on my list of things to do. Yeah, you got to go. Show up and, uh, get a picture in front of the town sign. I really uh, hope it's well, in got a really cool coat of arms, like a big black bleeding heart and like some lightning bolts. Like it's pretty sweet. <laughs> what, uh, what state in, in Germany is it in? Do you know? Bavaria somewhere. Bavaria. But I, I it sounds like remember. something that would be in Bavaria. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's cool. hilarious. Yeah. Well, awesome. I mean, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, thank you so much. I can't can't thank you enough. Um, really great, great information and uh, and some really great insights for our listeners. I think as they uh, contemplate innovation and, and new products for the for the market. So, thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Thank you. This has been an episode of The Innovation Engine, a podcast from 3Pillar Global. 3Pillar is a digital product development and innovation partner that helps companies compete and win in the digital economy. To learn more about 3Pillar Global and how we can help you, visit our website at 3PillarGlobal.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.